Please be seated. I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. One of the greatest joys of my life is to spend time alone together with my family, just the six of us. I'm a happy camper in that place, usually. Sometimes it's just more fun than others, but I love that, to be alone with my family. And precisely because I love them, I cherish time alone with each of them, and I work to carve out such opportunities. I wish it would happen more, it needs to, but I love to go out to eat alone with Beth or to leave town for a night with her. That's a joy. And because I love my children, I try to schedule daddy dates with them. Where we go out, just me and that child, and do something together. Or, as opportunity permits sometimes or requires, daddy talks in my home office. We have little interviews and we just talk alone. I love those times. When you genuinely love someone... You enjoy spending time alone with that person. And depending on the kind of love in view, you will actively work to secure such opportunities. This may be less true in context of friendship love or family love, both of which can be genuinely expressed without the benefits of isolation with individual members of the fraternity or the family. Your love for a cousin, to illustrate, is not suspect because you invite your uncle along to go fishing. Your love for a friend at church is not suspect because other church members are always with you when you have opportunity to speak. But I think we would all agree, wouldn't we, that there is something wrong with the relationship between, say, a husband and a wife when they love to be together when the kids are around, but take the kids away and they're very uncomfortable together. They really don't want to be together. There's something wrong with that relationship. Mates who genuinely love one another cherish time alone. And although friendship love and family love are not wired to thrive in moments of one-on-one isolation, they certainly can. You might have a friend, a teammate, a co-worker with whom it appears you enjoy a great relationship. You ever been in this place? But for some strange reason you get isolated. You end up in a car together, going somewhere together, and you find it very uncomfortable. And you really can't wait until it's over and you get back into the group, whatever it was. Yanked from the environment in which your relationship draws its life, you discover you have nothing in common and you can't wait for that isolation together to end. The simple point is that when you genuinely love someone, you are pleased to be alone with them and may, as appropriate, work to do that. I might as well express my struggle, particularly to those who visit with us. I'm seeing Jennifer Fish trying to get time alone with Brandon. It's hard because there's so many family gathered around that want to say goodbye. Why does she want to do that? 
because she loves him. She wants some time alone. So let me ask us as Christians today, do you enjoy spending time alone with God? Is there that same urgency and necessity to be alone with Him? Do you actively seek out those opportunities to meet alone with the greatest relationship on this earth? Let me suggest that if you do not like to be alone with God, if you do not actively seek such opportunities, there is something that is wrong with your relationship with Him. We are subtly reminded of this truth last week as we labored together in Luke chapter 5, and we come again today, and I'd like to linger on the point for a bit longer this week. I'd like to return to chapter 5 of Luke and verse 16 and to park on this verse for a while. We generally make a lot more progress in our study of Scripture, but I'd like to just draw off of this verse and to chase it down some rabbit trails this morning as we think about being alone with God. We read here in Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Let's start right here in Luke 5, 16. Let me draw out several ideas, and then I'd like to press on to some other passages Narrowing our focus to this singular consideration of Jesus in isolation with God. We find here, first of all, a habitual pattern. It says there in verse 16 that he often withdrew. This translation reflects a Greek tense and syntactical construction, which indicates that this was a habit for Jesus. He did this often. Jesus habitually sought solitude with his Father. This solitude was sought, we notice here in verse 16, in lonely places. The Greek text reads, in desert places. The meaning is not simply sand on the desert, but in isolated places. This was necessary for Jesus because of his popularity. A remote area was the only place that Jesus could secure solitude. Now, it might not be so hard for us. It probably won't be. We do not need to take a trip to the boundary waters or find a wooded area down here somewhere in order to get away and alone with God. We can find solitude with God in a car. We can find it in a bedroom at night or in a living room or kitchen before anyone else gets up in the morning. We can find it on a walk. We can even find solitude in our own minds in the midst of a crowd if our focus is right and given over to the Lord. What is important is that we find a location free of the distraction of people and of the pressing demands of our hurried lives. We need to find a place where it is quiet enough to meditate and to pray without constant interruption. This was a habit of Jesus, finding these isolated places. We notice Thirdly, that it was a top priority. Let's consider again the occasion here. Chapters 4 and 5 indicate that Jesus was experiencing tremendous popularity. In Jesus' case, there was nothing wrong with this. Any attention Jesus attracted to himself drew attention to his Father. It was right for him to be popular. 
Yet at this moment of opportunity, this very moment, the ability to draw attention to the Father, Jesus could maximize this, but in that very moment, he retreats to find time alone with God. And I think there's some principles we can draw out from that. First of all, regarding ministry, no degree of ministry success, success can justify prayerlessness. No degree of ministry success can justify prayerlessness. No weight of responsibility can excuse prayerlessness. If our work for God is so successful, we find no time to spend alone with Him, we aren't as successful as we think we are. God-assigned responsibilities never demand the elimination of seasons of prayerful solitude. They encourage them. And then regarding time, I've been kicking myself all week for stealing this thunder from this week's sermon last week, but let me say it again. No matter how busy he was, no matter the demands of his ministry, no matter the opportunity set before him, Jesus prioritized time alone with God, which says this, the life example of Jesus teaches us that busyness is never the real reason for a lack of prayer and solitude. Busyness is not the problem. The issue is priority. If Jesus needed to pray, rest assured, you and I need to pray. Now Luke 5.16 discloses this habitual practice of prayerful solitude in Jesus' life. I'd like us to turn now to consider four specific occasions in which we see Jesus praying in solitude. We want to survey these occasions briefly, draw out a few implications, and I'd like to close by drawing some further thoughts and meditations from all that we see here. The first occasion is in the midst of a popular healing ministry. We can just leave the lights on here, but we'll just sort of help you here as we work our way through these various occasions with this uh, graphic. In the midst of a popular healing ministry, I'd like us to turn to Mark chapter 1 to see this. Mark says a few things that Luke does not say on this occasion, and so I think we'll turn there Focus on Luke, or rather on Mark chapter 1. Let's paint the context. We've been here a couple of weeks ago. We visited this very scene. Jesus has delivered a demon possessed man at the synagogue. For the noon meal that day, he goes to Simon Peter's home, and there, Simon Peter's mother in law has a very high fever. Jesus immediately and completely heals her in that moment. Now, remember, the Sabbath does not permit any type of work for the Jews, and so that Sabbath passes and it ends at sundown. At sundown, the people flock to Jesus and are asking to be healed, and he's healing everyone who comes. In this occasion, it is not those who have faith. In this occasion, it is anyone who shows up at the door. He places his hands on them. He heals them. Now you can imagine the excitement of the people of Capernaum as the word goes around of this great healer, and you can imagine there were some who didn't make it that night and are waiting for Jesus. Well, in that context, we read at verse 32 of Mark 1. That evening, after sunset, the people brought Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons 
but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, so that's the scene that I just pictured for you. That's over now. He's in bed, apparently at Simon Peter's home. Very early in the morning, verse 35 says, While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So despite a very hard day of ministry, you put all of that together, Jesus is undoubtedly exhausted. But despite that hard day of ministry the day before, Jesus gets up before dawn, he leaves the house before breakfast, and finds a place where he can commune with God without interruption. Now a typical fisherman's home of that day would have been a simple single room with a smaller room on top as a second floor. Perhaps Jesus stayed in that upper room, but for some reason he decides he cannot find solitude here, and so he goes down uh, goes outside and finds a place where he can be alone. Isolates himself with God. Now Mark 1 and verse 36 says, That day Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Peter's saying to, to uh, paraphrase, Jesus, where have you been? Don't you understand? Everybody wants to know where you are. You can just see Peter looking out in the pre-dawn, for, where, for Jesus, or in the early morning hours as the light comes and the people are crowding to the door, they, want to de- they desperately want to see you. We've got to meet with these people. Jesus' time of early morning solitude is interrupted. We notice that he issues no rebuke at this time, but goes on apparently with the day from that point and in fact leaves that location for another. But we find a second occasion in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. I just want to string these occasions together of Jesus in solitude with the Father. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. It would seem safe to conclude that this all-night prayer vigil described in verse 12 is directly related to the choosing of the twelve in verse 13. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them whom he had designated apostles. It would appear that those two ideas go together. He spent the night in prayer before choosing these twelve men. These men, Jesus knows, must be teachable, they must be charactered, they must be capable men. So much rested on this decision, knowing that what these men would have to become. Jesus goes to the Father and through the entire night prays in preparation for this calling. Now here he's not interrupted by the disciples. In fact, it would appear as he comes from prayer, he's had his time to pray. And so he addresses them and goes to them. We find a third situation comes after receiving news of John the Baptist's execution. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist served as Jesus' baptizer and prophetic forerunner. But John's hard-hitting sermons eventually ran afoul of Herod, the Tetrarch, who arrested and incarcerated John. Remember that horrifying scene that Matthew recounts of this man uh, giving his 
agreement with the execution of John, who is then beheaded. John's distraught disciples, apparently on that same day, take the body of John, bury it, and then go and seek out Jesus, breaking the sad news to Christ. I don't want to go in too deeply here to the relationship between Jesus and John, but we can just put together on human terms the connection between these men. It was deep. It was meaningful. That's the context in which we read Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard what had happened. Now, I believe we're looking at Jesus here in his full humanity. This is not something he knows has happened, but he is learning this news. When he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. John the Baptist was a man whose life-dominating task was to glorify God. He was thus a man whom Jesus loved. Jesus had spent his entire ministry humbly pointing others to Jesus. John had spent his time pointing others to Jesus. And now this companion in ministry is gone. It was not only a heart-wrenching loss for Jesus, John's execution also served as foreshadowing of things to come for Messiah. It's under that pressure, that intense grief, that sobering setback, that Jesus purposefully secures time alone with God. It is a pattern worthy of emulation. Verse 13, the second part of the verse says, Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Now put that together, what Jesus is experiencing. He longs to be alone with his Father here, but he's pursued actively by the crowds, who of course think nothing of this. In verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That is an amazing statement. We could easily excuse Jesus a hundred times over for just telling everybody, listen, I can't deal with this today. There's been a loss in the family. Come back tomorrow at least. But as Jesus' boat lands and the anxious crowds that are drawing and sucking life and energy from him are standing there on the shore, he is moved with compassion for them. He was anxious for his time alone with God, but it never got in his way of loving people. Scene number four is the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we will start at verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39, remembering the context again, Jesus is soon to be arrested and taken to an illegal night trial. He knows that his time on earth is short. He will soon hang on a Roman cross. He's preparing for that emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's an excruciating ordeal. He prepares himself by praying deep into the night. 
Luke 22 and verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him on reaching the place. He said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, note that, and He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Matthew goes into further detail of this account, but suffice it here to say, Jesus is accompanied by his details on this infamous night, yet once again he seeks solitude. He moves about a stone's throw away on his own. And may I suggest here that verse 42 is the sentiment that epitomized all of Jesus' prayers. Not my will, but yours be done. That is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. That is, how we, that is what we hear him saying in his prayer here. This is not, I don't believe, just something that happened at this last moment. This is how Jesus prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. There is a deep submission here on the part of the Son to the Father. In one sense, in this context, Jesus is not interrupted in another sense, he is. You see this on the graphic. There's a sense, as he says, here they come. My, uh, those who are going to take me captive have come into the garden. I know that they're here. So there's a sense in which it's interrupted. There's a sense in which he initiates the interruption. So he is somewhat not alone, somewhat alone, somewhat interrupted, somewhat not in this last scene. Just by way of note. These several snapshots from the life of Jesus indicate a habitual practice of prayerful solitude. That's what I'd like us to get a hold of and to think about here today. Jesus clearly cherished times alone with his Father. And he acted to secure them against a lot of odds. As 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 calls us to follow, quote, follow the example of Christ, I would suggest that we should do the same thing. And we will do the same thing, I believe, if we love God genuinely. As we pursue that end, I'd like you to think with me on a few lines of application. In light of Christ's example, I'd like to first address this one issue. Submissive dependence. We see from the composite of these various scenes that Jesus was submissively dependent upon his Father. Jesus was himself God. Yet he cherished time alone with God and he longed for God's guidance and provision. It's an amazing thought. In the flow of triune harmony, Jesus always expressed submissive dependence on the Father. Now how do we look at submissive dependence? Honestly, in this day, in this time, in our culture and setting. In our fallen state, for that matter, we are hardwired to see submissive dependence as an indication of weakness. We see submissive dependence as an admission of inferiority. And we very reluctantly give submissive dependence to anyone because it seems to place in their hands a power that we don't want to give up. And when we think that way, we do not have the mind of Jesus. He didn't think that way. Many people, in fact, have seen this submissive dependence on the part of Jesus and have concluded he was not God. 
because you can't be God and submit to God, is the thought. But it is at this very point again that we fail to understand Jesus and to think like Him, and the implications are wide-reaching. For Jesus' submissive dependence on the Father was an act of triune harmony and cosmic wholeness, not of weakness. And there is a tremendous application to our own human realm as we relate to other people. Let's set our relationship to God aside for a while and let's think about human to human and this issue of submission. If we would think like Jesus, we would not have a problem submitting to human government. Because we would realize that this is part of God's plan and it is something that is good and whole to submit to human government. We would have no problem children submitting to parents if we thought like Jesus thinks. Wives would have no difficulty with the thought of submitting to their husbands when they think of Jesus on his knees saying, not my will, but yours be done. He's God as he says that. Church members would have no problem with the thought of church leadership and an issue of submission that is commanded there by Scripture. All of those areas trouble us. We don't find them natural to submit to the authority that God places in our lives because we don't think like Jesus thought. Now, obviously, we know we are dealing with authorities that often fail, and that complicates the issue at times. But submission between equals is not weakness. Submission between equals is not inferiority, necessarily. Submission is a necessary and healthy function of all relational beings. Without submission, our world falls apart. And you go into any one of those four areas, and we could add others, government, parent to child, wife to husband, church members to leadership, and where there is a lack of submission, there will be trouble. God knows that, which is why he lays out these commands of submission. Our struggle is not with submission. Our struggle is that we don't think like Jesus thought. On his knees before the Father, submitting in his relationship. Without such submission, our world disintegrates around us. Well, let's elevate it now and look at our relationship with God in our prayers. If Jesus submitted to the Father in prayerful, submissive dependence, who are we to function any differently? Unlike Jesus, we are inferior to God. Unlike Jesus, we are weak in comparison to God. Did you hear the words we sung this morning? I am weak. I am small. You are great and God of all. We are weak. We are small. If Jesus could submit to the Father in everything that He did, who are we to think we can go any other way? Like Jesus, we must learn to contend with God to glorify His name. Like Jesus, we need to learn to submit to the Father's will. We need to pray as Jesus did in Luke 22 and as He taught in Matthew chapter 6, not my will but yours be done. 
How many of our prayers, honestly, are God, change your mind? Do what I want. Our prayers need to be, your will be done, and we need to get alone with God and to say that to him. Such occasions are not dutiful obligation. They're an energizing force. And that's the second point I'd like to labor on here for a few moments. The importance Jesus placed upon getting alone with God is witnessed by the difficulties that he endured to gain time for prayer. The power and guidance Jesus received from God through prayer was more valuable to Jesus than physical strength. He knows what he's facing as he goes to the cross, and he spends the whole night in the garden praying and chiding his disciples for putting more attention on sleep than prayer. And I, I know, my heart goes out to the disciples. All of the intensity of what they're going through, they were utterly exhausted. How could they stay awake? But Jesus, in his humanity, felt the necessity of prayer more important than being rested for his trials, which he knew were coming. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus never slept, but we do see a pattern of putting sleep aside to get time to pray. Remember I said it's never busyness that keeps us from prayer, but I will tell you it is often sleep that keeps us from prayer. Now, we need to sleep. We need to refresh our bodies. But if we know God, if we're coming to know the energizing force of solitude alone with him, there will be times when sleep won't matter. But this energizing force that comes from prayer, from relating to God alone, is frankly not an experience that we often have, is it? For us, so, pro so often, prayer is just the opposite. It is not worth the pain. It is not worth the time. If truth were told, you may not find prayerful solitude very, very helpful at all and quite uncomfortable. Well, there's a reason for that. Isolation alone with God is a dull torture for those who draw life or inspiration from sources outside of God. If your life is being drawn from some other source, your focus and your dependence is on something else. When you get alone with God, it is not going to feel very good. Let me illustrate this, and I don't mean to illustrate this too precisely, but I think it does serve. So don't read anything into it, necessarily. But I remember talking with, uh, as a teenager with another teenager about going to Bible camp. This is a Christian young lady. And she said to a group of us, I can't go to Bible camp for a whole week because I could never leave my music behind. As she illustrates there what I'm trying to say, there's a certain life force that she is drawing from a certain kind of music that she knew she would have to leave behind to go to this camp. And she said, I can't do it. 
And we could add a lot of other things there, of other things that have kept people from going away for some time because they can't leave that environment. What do we do with prisoners who simply will not behave in prison? They're put in the hole. They're put in solitary confinement. And that is a place where people are broken. Why are they broken there? Because the environment, the evil environment from which they draw energy is removed. And they're like a flower that is pulled up by the roots and put off under the sun on a shelf. They don't have any source of energy. There's no force. There's nothing there. And they fall apart in solitary confinement. Do you know there are stories, I've shared one with you within the last year, of prisoners of war who have been in solitary confinement for years and have thrived. They've thrived because they have been alone with God. And they liked it. Now they don't want to stay there in solitary confinement. If you find somebody in that spot, they've got a problem too. Jesus didn't stay in solitary confinement. But it was okay. God was there. There was a real and vital relationship with the Lord that sustained them in solitary confinement. Now let's think about this. If God is your environment, if God is your love, if He is your source of power and strength and wisdom and guidance, you want to spend time alone with Him because it is invigorating, it is energizing, it gives you strength. Prayerful solitude shuts out all the other sources of sustenance for us and it forces us to lean upon God alone for life. Such an experience may prove excruciating or it may prove invigorating. The issue is not God, the issue is how I relate to Him. Turn with me to Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9. A passage of Scripture that plays very heavily into the philosophy of our church. Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist says this, They, that is God's people, feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. With you is the fountain of life. From you we drink pleasures. There are rivers of delight in God. When you're alone with God, do you find that river? Do you find that delight? Do you find that energizing force in your life? If you don't, let me say that that is a foreshadowing of death. What I mean by that is when you are alone with God, you approximate the moment of your death. There is a day coming, barring a tragic, immediate death, when this world is going to fade away. And you are going to be left face to face 
naked before God, unsupported by anything but your relationship to Him. In that moment as you leave life, how will you relate to your judge and king and your sacrificial Savior? If you don't want to be alone with Him now, I have no idea how you think you're going to want to be alone with Him then. We fill our lives with noise. We fill our lives with distraction. We find sometimes we can't even be alone in a car without listening to somebody talking on the radio or some music. We hate silence. We fill our lives with amusement and with busyness. We must learn. We must learn to stop, to come apart, and to commune alone with God. His number will never be busy. There will never be an answering machine. He is all-present, all-powerful. He hears it all. You can go to Him now, and you can go to Him today, and you can go to Him in isolation the rest of your life, and He'll never be busy. He will hear you. He will nurture you. He will sustain you as you come in humble submissive dependence, saying, not my will, but yours be done. If you truly love him, you will want to do that. If you are his child, that is your privilege, and it is your power. Let's go to him in prayer as a church. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We plead with you, Father, before your throne that you will encourage us in our weakness. We are so self-dependent and unsubmissive. We are so unconcerned about relating to you as we should. Forgive us, Lord, whatever the sin might be, of loving things too much, of pursuing wealth too anxiously, of working so hard to be with children and mates and family members and friends that we leave no time to be alone with you. Forgive us, God, of loving health of the body more than we love health of the soul. Forgive us for loving food and sleep and relaxation more than we love you. And God, we need these things. 
You've not called us to a life of unceasing isolation. You have called us apart to rest. You've called us to care for our bodies. You've called us to enjoy this world and what you've provided for us. But God, may we not idolatrously enjoy these things at the exclusion of enjoying you, and particularly in solitude. Increase, Lord, our devotion, our attention to you, and our purposes with you. If there is someone here who thinks of standing in your presence and finds it very uncomfortable, I pray, God, that you'd help them at least just to see the reality of the matter, that that is what is going to happen. And I pray, dear God, that you will move their heart to see the light of the gospel and draw them to Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, with all of my heart, I plead with you, for those of us who know you, that we will love you and honor you with all of our heart. May we take time to pursue the holiness that you would have for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.